Hey, welcome to Salt Church. We are really glad that you're here to worship with us, to open the Bible with us, and it's just a joy to gather together each week. Uh, around the beginning of this year, of 2021, we opened the Bible and began teaching a series through the book of Genesis. We've been kind of going just chapter by chapter through this book, and we've encountered some different main characters that we've been following and seeing how God interacted with them, the work that he did in their lives. And, and some of these stories have been a little bit crazy. Uh, today's, thankfully, is not quite as um, explicit, maybe, as the word as we've had in the last few weeks. This one, we, we get to meet this guy named Joseph. In fact, this guy, Joseph, we're going to actually have him as our main character for the rest of our series in the book of Genesis. And by the end of this book, which is just like four or five weeks away, by the end of the book of Genesis, we're going to find Joseph in a place of great power, in a place of great honor, in a place of great blessing. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, will say about Joseph in Genesis 41, here's what he says about Joseph, no one will be able to raise his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt without Joseph's permission. Like that is a great place of power. And with that place of power, Joseph experiences great blessing. But Joseph isn't selfish. He actually uses that place of great blessing to be a blessing to other people. It was his wisdom, it was his plan and his administration that saved all of Egypt from death in the midst of this severe famine that would come upon them. All the lands around Egypt would be rescued and saved because of the work of Joseph. Joseph received incredible blessing and he was an incredible blessing to the people around him. And let's be honest, like sign me up for that, right? Like, don't we all want to be in a place of great blessing, in a place of great power that we could use for good? Don't we long to live the life that is hashtag blessed, right? If my 13-year-old was here, she'd tell me not to do that. That's not cool. You can tell me that. That's okay. Like, we want a life like that one, don't we? Even if we wouldn't be as noble as Joseph to use that place of blessing for the good and the sake of others, we would love to receive the blessing of God in our lives. But here's the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning. Here's the question. What does the path that leads to the place of blessing, what does that path look like and feel like? Like, what do we encounter on that journey that gets us from the place that we are to that place of blessing that we all desire? Like, how do we get there? Right, by the end of Genesis chapter 37, that's the chapter that we have today. Genesis 37, by the end of this chapter, Joseph ends up in Egypt. And Egypt would be that place of great blessing and great honor. By the end of our chapter today, he gets to Egypt, but his journey to get there maybe looks a little different than we would expect it to or want it to. And I think there's a lesson in there for us today. So open your Bibles, Genesis 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll put the verses on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, we have a lot of them and would happily give one to you if that would be a blessing to you. Genesis 37, we're going to read the first four verses. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. 
These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Verse 3, now Israel, that's another name for Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Now, a quick reminder about who Jacob is. Jacob is the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. Abraham was the man, if you were with us, that you might remember way back months ago in Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham that says, I will give you land, I will give you a large family, and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. Jacob, who was Isaac's son and Abraham's son, Jacob then had 12 sons, which imagine that, life with 12 sons. That would be crazy on itself, but the way that it happened, again, if you remember this from just a few weeks ago, he had four sons to Leah. Leah was his wife, who he was tricked into marrying and who he didn't love. He then had two sons with a slave of Rachel. Rachel was the wife that he actually loved, had two sons with her slave, and then two sons with Leah's slave, and then Leah jumped back in, and we got two more sons with her, and then finally he had two sons with Rachel, and one of those sons was Joseph. Imagine the world of hurt and brokenness and conflict that existed in this time existed between these families. It shouldn't be a surprise that Joseph's brothers didn't like him very much. On top of that, Jacob favors Joseph. He favors him so much that everybody around knows it. They can see it. They can feel it. They experience it. And on top of that, Jacob had actually put Joseph in charge over his older brothers. Joseph was 17 and he was the boss over all of his older brothers. And we read in the text that, that Jacob gave Joseph this long-sleeved coat. Other translations would say a coat of many colors. And what this coat designated, it was a gift that showed the favoritism of Jacob, but it also was a, a, a designation that Joseph was like management. He was a supervisor. He was the boss. So you've got Joseph favored by his dad, in charge of his older brothers. And as you can imagine, his older brothers hated that. And they hated him. They didn't like the authority that he had. They didn't like the favoritism that their dad showed to him. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he did. They hated him. Put yourself in those shoes for a moment. Those shoes of Joseph, 17-year-old. I asked Nolan this morning how old he is. He's about to turn 17. The dude sitting in the back is Joseph's age, and his brothers hate him. He hadn't done anything wrong. Right? Like, you know what it's like to be the object of somebody's frustration and anger when you've earned it. Now think about what it feels like when you haven't done anything wrong. And they hate him. They're frustrated with him. That's where Joseph finds himself in the beginning of our story, as we get introduced to him. And what happens next actually isn't going to help their relationship. Keep reading verse 5. And then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I had. There we were binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. 
Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? And so they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Verse 9. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his fathers and brothers and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this you have had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, and his father kept the matter in mind. Now, we don't get from this text that Joseph, like, proudly, arrogantly was excited to run and, like, show off and brag to his brothers, right? If that was one of my kids that had a dream like that, they couldn't wait until they woke up to tell their brothers and be proud of it. We don't get that he has ill motives or a wrong way of speaking about this. Now, he may have been a little naive. I think we could admit that. If you have a dream like this, it might not be best to go and just tell everybody, especially when they're going to bow down before you. But, but he just tells them what's true. He tells them what he saw. And we've got to remember that in this time, specifically with this family, dreams actually were a little bit different than maybe the random dream that you and I might have. Right, when my four-year-old wakes up and tells me about the dream where these Paw Patrol characters came to life and were chasing him around, I'm not looking for the deep spiritual meaning in that. I'm not worried, like, are these toy action figures going to grow up and come to life and come after him? I'm, I'm not worried about that. But for this family, in this time, God had already used dreams. He'd already spoken to them through, him, through dreams. He had already brought to bear the things that they saw in their dreams. They knew that they were different. And the brothers, they react to the dream pretty much like we think they would. Pretty much maybe like you would if you heard a dream like that one. But look at how Jacob responds. It's interesting. At first, he rebukes Joseph and, and seems kind of exasperated at the thought that all of their family and their family lineage would like bow down and honor Joseph, this young boy in the family. But, but here's the language it used. It says, he kept the matter in mind. He kept the matter in mind. And like the language being used there, it kind of gives this thought or this idea that he kind of believed it, that he kind of like remembered it, that he thought, oh, that actually might be true. See, see Jacob had had dreams before. I don't know if you remember them from the, from the last few times we've read the text. God had spoken to him through dreams. What God had spoken to him had come true before for Jacob and so Jacob hears of this dream of Joseph, and he, he keeps it in mind. He begins to believe it. See what happens next. Verse 12. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. Again, Joseph is like their supervisor. And so Jacob's going to send them to check on the flocks to see how it's going. I'm ready, Joseph replied. And then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. And so he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. A man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? Verse 17, they've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And so Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. 
Now, I'm sure many of you have listened to like a little kid tell you a story, or I'll be honest, a teenage girl might tell it the same way, but you know how it goes. Like they start to tell a story and you're, you're working hard to stay interested because you don't really care that much, but you know you should. And so you're listening and, and then all of a sudden there are details being shared and there are tangents being told and they're pr- pointing out like every little detail that makes no difference in the story. It doesn't advance the plot line. You're trying really hard. That one minute story becomes 10 minutes. Pretty soon you're disengaged. Like you know what that's like, right? If you don't, my kids have got a lot of stories. Just ask them, they'll tell you a story. And here's the thing, this part of our text feels like one of these little just details of a story that doesn't seem to matter. The brothers are are angry and jealous with Joseph, and pretty soon we're going to see what they do as a result of that anger and that jealousy. And sandwiched in this middle is this section about Joseph wandering around and meeting some dude in a field. It seems superfluous. It seems extra. It doesn't seem helpful. But actually, church, it's actually really critical to seeing what's going on here, to understanding the lesson that God is trying to teach us. It might feel unnecessary, but it's really not. Because here's what's happened through many times in our story in Genesis. Like we've had often, like two or three, maybe four times, our main character has been highlighted in the story and some stranger has come up to them. Some man he's met on the road who had a message for him, had instruction for him. And almost all of those times, that's actually been like an angel of God that he sent to give a message. And now we don't see that this stranger wandering in the field is an angel, but there is no doubt that he is sent by God to tell Joseph something. I mean, what are the odds that Joseph is wandering around in a field that happens to have this same dude in the same field? The same dude that actually was there maybe weeks earlier and heard his brothers say where they were going to take the sheep. What are the odds that that would happen? Not very good. What are the odds that when this man would say, I think they went to this place, that Joseph would go to Dothan and find them there? Dothan, 14 miles away. And it's not just Joseph like jumped in the pickup truck, headed over to the next field. No, that would have been two or three days of a walk for Joseph to find his brothers and to find the pastures. If Joseph didn't run into this man, he might have wandered for weeks and months. He may have never found his brothers, may have never found their flocks. God made sure that Joseph found his brothers. And here's where our text gets challenging emotionally and theologically. Or like, have you ever met some random person on an airplane or sat next to him on the bus and you end up having this really great, really encouraging, really like God-honoring conversation? And at the end of that conversation, one of the two of you might say something like this, super churchy phrase, but you might say, boy, God just ordained us to meet today. And isn't God good who set us up to have this beautiful, encouraging, great conversation today? You've probably maybe been a part of a conversation like that. If you don't, you know people who have. And I'm not knocking that at all. We should praise God for setting up, encouraging, building conversations in our life, and he does that. We should celebrate that. But here's what we're less likely to do. When our car breaks down, or when our alarm doesn't go off, or something far more terrible happens, what we aren't quick to say is, I'm so glad God ordained that to happen. 
man, isn't it good that God set me up to be frustrated and disappointed and angry? Have any of you ever said that? Not once. But does God have any less influence over our bad days than he does our good days? Like, does God have any less power to stop the bad things from happening as he does making the good ones? See, God needed Joseph to get to his brothers because God needed Joseph to get to Egypt. Like, God needed that to happen, and so God orchestrated this meeting with a stranger to give him directions to go find his brothers. But what happens next in the story of Joseph is anything but fun. Like, this is not some exciting, enjoyable adventure for Joseph. He is going to be betrayed by his brothers. He is going to be thrown in a pit, and he is going to be sold as a slave to Egypt. And while God didn't make his brothers commit those acts of injustice, what God also didn't do was rescue Joseph from it, stop it from happening, send Joseph the other way. Right? God could have spoken through this man in the field and said, don't go to Dothan. That place awaits terror and danger and tragedy for you. Go the other way. But he didn't. Look at, what's, look at what happens to Joseph, starting in verse 18. They, his brothers, saw him in the distance. And before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of the dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into the pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. He was intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors that he had on, that symbol of favoritism, that symbol of authority. They ripped it off, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. They sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes he went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? And so they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. God could have intervened. He could have stopped Joseph from getting to his brothers. He didn't. He didn't. And, and this is what happened to Joseph. Like what we read, that is what happened to Joseph. He was almost killed. And then he was rescued by the actions of Reuben and Judah as they worked to preserve his life. But then he sold as a slave into Egypt. Like, imagine the, the fear in Joseph's heart. Remember, he's only 17 years old. 
the anxiety and the wonder about what would happen to him. And I wonder how often he thought about those dreams. Right? How often as he was being dragged along this route as a slave being sold into Egypt, I wonder how often he thought about those dreams and thought, God, like, is, is this what you meant? Like, is, is this the path to that place of blessing that you were showing me? Did I, like, did I just get, him, get that dream wrong? Like, what is going on? As he would begin to question God and wonder about God. Like, are we headed in the right direction? God, do you know what you're doing? Are you in control? Are you good? He had to be wrestling with those questions. See, it's easy to credit God when things are easy. It's easy to credit God when things are fun and make sense in our own minds, but it's also easy to discredit God, to doubt him, to blame him when things don't go well. We don't actually get a window into what Joseph was thinking. Right? We don't hear from him in the back half of this text. I don't think we have to work hard, do we, to know what he felt, to, to know what questions he would ask, the doubts he would have. As he's being dragged along on the way to Egypt, he had to be wondering, God, are you, are you still with me? Are you still in this? God, I know that you say you're good and that I want to say that you're good. Are you still? God, I think that you're powerful and in control, but, but it seems like things are out of control. This couldn't be the plan for my life, right? This hurt, this abuse, this injustice, this surely couldn't be the path towards blessing, could it? He had to be asking those questions. Look what happens next. This is the end of our text. The brothers sent the long-sleeved robe to their father and said, we found this, examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe. He said, a vicious animal had devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth around his waist and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. In verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. By the end of this chapter, by the end of chapter 37, Joseph ends up in Egypt. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see it, it doesn't go completely easy and smooth at first, but eventually Joseph ends up in this place of great blessing, great blessing for himself, but even more importantly, he was a great blessing to many others. But the path to get to that place was difficult. It wasn't easy. It was rocky. It was bumpy. It was full of injustice, pain, hardship, hurt path wasn't easy. A couple weeks ago, our family went on a, just a short little vacation to northeast Georgia to the Blue Ridge Mountains, and one of the days we had, we'd been reading about this like waterfall. It's like a 300-foot waterfall that's just supposed to be beautiful. So we decided we would go and hike the trail that led to this waterfall. And 
So we went. The trail was like a mile or, or 1.2 miles. Not too bad. Our kids could make it. We, we'd heard this waterfall is just beautiful. And so we headed to go hike that trail and go see the waterfall. Before we got to the trail, though, we got to the road that led to the trail. Here's what that road looked like. Uh, th- within the first, like, I don't know, quarter of a mile, there was water, like, rushing over the road. Apparently, that was normal. That's to be expected. And so we decided, all right, we think we're going to try to, like, drive through it to keep going on this road. I don't know if you know this. I drive a minivan. Those aren't known for going through water very well. I'm out measuring. Like, I got eight inches. If this water's not more than eight inches deep, I can get through it. Made it through the water. But then the reward of getting through the water is a mile-long gravel road full of bumps and twists and turns, and it felt like it was like straight up and down. So throw the van in low gear, tires are spinning, we're going around all these bumps and turns and whatever. My van's like getting super hot because it's just, it's tired by the time we get to the top of that hill. But then we walk to the trail and we get down to just this beautiful creation, this beautiful waterfall. Like the path that my van had to endure wasn't smooth, it wasn't easy, but the reward at the end was beautiful. It was worth it, right? And and we can all like say, oh, that feels good when we talk about trivial things like a van driving up a hill to a waterfall. What about real life? And what about real problems and real hurts? What about when the path that you're on is not just about a gravel road with some bumps in it, but it has abuse and it has death, and it has tragedy, and it has injustice, and it has like deep hurts. What about that path? Like what's at the end of that path? Is, is going on that path worth it? Like isn't that the question we find ourselves asking? Like this pathway is hard, when do I bail? Is it worth it to keep going? Like Joseph had to be asking that question as he's being dragged along as a slave towards Egypt, he had to wonder, God, is this the right path? Is this the right direction? And here's what Joseph would find out. Joseph would find out, and this is going to come true chapters later, but he would find out that suffering is actually what paves the path of blessing. Suffering, and, and that's our big idea today. If you're taking notes, write this down. Suffering paves the path of blessing. Now, is suffering required to be a person who has a life blessed by God? I can't find a passage of scripture that says, to be blessed by God, you must suffer. But here's what's true. I can't find a story in the Bible, and I can't find a Christian I know who is blessed by God that hasn't endured suffering. I don't know a single one who hasn't endured hardship, who hasn't been hurt deeply, who hasn't struggled in this life for one reason or another. Like Jesus even told his disciples, hey, the world hates me. The world hates me. So if you're going to act like me and be like me and follow me, guess what? The world is going to hate you too. Suffering, hardship, pain, hurt. Church, these are not indicators that you're probably on the wrong path. That is not trying to convey to you that God doesn't care for you, he doesn't love you, he's not in control, and he's not watching out for you. That's not what suffering and pain and hurt means. Because it is often in the midst of suffering that God is going to shape you the most. It is often the real hurt in our life that finally wakes us up to realize that we actually need Jesus, that we can't do this on our own. 
Let me ask you a question. Who do you think is the most blessed person in the history of the world? You can answer this one if you think of it. Who do you think is the most blessed person in the history of the world? Here's a little clue. If anybody ever asks you a who question in church from the stage, the answer is always Jesus. Always. (laughs) Here's the argument I would make. Jesus experienced true intimacy and true relationship with God the Father. That is blessing. And because of the work of Jesus, millions and millions and millions of people have had their sins forgiven, and they will spend eternity and intimate in relationship with God the Father. That is being a blessing. I would argue that Jesus is the most blessed person who has ever walked on this earth. And here's what's true. You and I, we couldn't experience closeness with God if it wasn't for Jesus. We couldn't experience forgiveness of our sins if it wasn't for his work. We couldn't have received the greatest form of blessing that this world has ever known if Jesus didn't do what Jesus did. But let me ask you, what did the path of blessing look like for Jesus? Was it smooth? Was it easy? Was it a fun adventure? He was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was persecuted, he was spit on, he was whipped, he was beat, he had nails driven through his hands and his feet, and he was murdered on a cross. His path of blessing was paved with suffering, it was full of it, saturated by it. And so if we want to follow him, why would we think our path would be any different? If you're sitting in here this morning and you, like, don't know Jesus, like, you found your way here because you thought it sounded interesting or somebody tricked you into coming or drug you along with them, but, it, but if you would say, I don't, I don't really know Jesus, I'm learning about him, I'm not sure if I want to give him, like, trust and control over my life yet, I'm just checking this thing out. Here's the warning that I want to give to you today. Because you might hear some preachers out there telling you that the blessing of God is at the end of a path filled with fun and ease and everything you could ever dream for. They would tell you that if you just have the right amount of faith and if you just pray just the right way, and oh, by the way, if you donate enough to their building campaign to build them that next big house, like you can have the blessing of God. And I'm going to tell you, that's garbage. It's garbage. You won't find that in scripture. And you won't find that by looking at the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people who walk with Jesus, who have endured suffering and hardship and pain. The path of following Jesus, the path of receiving and giving the blessing of God in your life, that path is not an easy one. It's not without bumps and bruises. It's not without pain and frustration and hurt and heartaches. It's not easy, but it is worth every tear. It is worth every moment of fear and frustration. It is worth every heartache. It is worth every doubt because the blessing of God far outweighs any of the suffering. The opportunity that you have as a human being on this earth in 2021, the opportunity that you have to have close, 
intimate relationship with the God who created the universe. He was powerful enough to do that, and yet he is personal enough that he wants to know you, walk with you, help you, encourage you. You have that opportunity. That blessing is there for you, awaiting you. But it's not always going to be easy. I mentioned a few weeks ago that my dad passed away at age 54. And again, as you can imagine, for our whole family, it was just a place of grief and sadness and heartache, just wondering, like, what does this mean? Like, what is ahead for us? And you can imagine my mom especially finding herself in that place. And a couple days after dad passed away, a lady who was a friend of my mom's and a really good friend of my grandma's came up to my mom, and, and I'm going to warn you, um, bless her sweetheart. Isn't that what you say in the South when you're about to trash somebody? Like, <laughs> bless her sweetheart. She really meant well. But, but she came up to mom and she said, I'm so excited for you. She might have even used the language to say, like, I'm jealous of you because of the intimacy and the closeness with God that you're going to experience in the coming months. Now, note for the future, never say something like that in that moment to somebody. But I remember months later, maybe even a year later, talking with mom, recounting that story and her saying, you know what, it's true. It's true because she had experienced a deeper dependence, a closer intimacy, because she understood, for the, not for the first time, but most deeply, most sharply, her need for the God of the universe to be personal to her and close to her, to depend on him. And that experience was a tremendous blessing. To each of us sitting in this room, do we want to experience the blessing of God? I hope we all say yes to that. Like, I do. I want the blessing of God. But here's what's true. Expect suffering. Rejoice in it. Lean into it. Persevere through it. Imagine what would happen if your neighbor saw you experiencing deep joy when it didn't make sense to do that and to feel that. Imagine what it would be like if your classmate saw you rejoicing in God when it made no logical sense to do that. If that flat tire or that missed alarm or that deep grief that you were experiencing if you would see that not as God abandoning you and forsaking you, not loving you anymore, not taking care of you, if you would see those hardships as God refining you, teaching you, and drawing you near him. Imagine what might happen if that were true. We don't hear in our text Joseph sharing what he's feeling. We don't see him like tell the brothers what he's thinking and how he's feeling in the midst of this great suffering. But by the end of the book, when he is in that place of honor and power and blessing, here's what he says. Genesis 50, verse 20. Here's what he says to his brothers. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Like God preserved the promise to Abraham and his lineage all the way down through Joseph to bless them so that they would be a blessing to others. And here's what's true, church. God's desire is to do the same for you and the same for me. Take heart in the middle of hard times. Endure the suffering that you're, face, that you're facing and believe, understand. Church, the path to blessing, it's not always easy. 
It's not always smooth. But it is worth it. It is worth it. Because no matter what anyone around you ever does to you to intend it to be for your harm and for your evil and for your detriment, remember and believe what Joseph knew, what he believed. You planned it for evil. Oh, man, God used it for so much good. Believe that truth today. Let's pray.